We continue our series in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 this morning. I'm not going to read the entirety of both chapters, though we will be working through it, but I will read sections of it. So Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of, of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God tells Moses he's going to rescue his people out of Egypt. He's going to use Moses to do that, down to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to remember, be remembered throughout all generations. God reiterates to Moses he's going to rescue his people out of Egypt and use Moses to do it. The chapter 4, verse 1. And then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. In the book, Conversations with God, Neil Walsh says that one day he simply started to record, write down his direct conversations with God. And the God that Walsh speaks about is not Christian. He's not even identified with a major world religion. Walsh explains one of his conversations, one of these direct conversations that he had with God, and it reveals his understanding of how God reveals himself to people. Listen to this conversation. 
God says to Walsh, I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. Walsh says, but my truth about God comes from you. God says, who said so? Walsh says, others. God says, what others? Walsh says, leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible, for heaven's sake. God says, those are not authoritative sources. Walsh says, they aren't. God says, no. Walsh says, then, then what is? God says, listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Now, that interaction by Neil Walsh and God, his, quote, direct conversation, actually captures the sentiment of our culture. That that is the way that God reveals himself. It's through your feelings. It's through subjective experiences. The Bible, and specifically this conversation, direct conversation between God and Moses, reveals a very different way that God reveals himself to his world. This is the first time since Genesis chapter 46 that God has spoken when, that was when Joseph brought his family to Egypt because of the famine. This is the first time since then that God has spoken and revealed himself. And it teaches us a lot about how God reveals himself to a lost and broken world. How does he do that? First, we're gonna see God reveals himself through a mediator. Moses is tending his sheep, and we read in verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. God appears to Moses through fire, but specifically a fire that is not consuming the bush. And you say, why is this significant? Well, a fire needs fuel to burn, right? A fire needs wood to burn, yet this is a fire that is burning without the need for fuel. God is revealing himself to Moses as the self-existent one who is not dependent on his creation. Now, why fire? Well, fire throughout the scriptures is symbolic of God's presence. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he appears, he reveals himself to Abraham in a smoking fire pot that passes through the animal pieces. When God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he reveals himself through smoke and fire on the mountain. When God leads his people after they get rescued out of Egypt, which we'll get to, and he's leading them through the wilderness, he leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that God reveals himself, his presence, through fire. But fire is not only symbolic of God's presence, it's symbolic of God's holiness or his set-apartness. And that's what makes sense of this encounter between God and 
Moses. Notice what happens. So God appears through this fire to grab Moses' attention. But as soon as Moses turns to the bush and sees this fire, what does God say to him in verse five? Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He says, Moses, come near, but don't come too near. Why? The holiness of God is oftentimes, we oftentimes talk about it as a passive attribute, but the holiness of God is an active force that embraces all that conforms to it and destroys all that offends it or does not conform to it. So the holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it. Psalm 24, verses three to four. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it, but it destroys that which offends or doesn't conform. 1 Samuel six nineteen, And God struck some of the men because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They looked upon God's presence, his holiness. And the people respond to this and say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This explains what happens to our first parents in Genesis chapter three. When they sin, God banishes them from the garden. He sends them out of the garden. It seems like a very harsh and unloving response to the people that he created. But it's actually an incredibly loving response. Because if God wouldn't have banished them and sent them out, his holiness would have destroyed them. God's holiness embraces all that conforms to it and destroys that which doesn't. So back to the Moses' story and the encounter he has here with God. Why isn't Moses destroyed? A sinful man in the presence of a holy God. Well, notice who appears to Moses in the burning bush. Verse two says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Now, who's this angel of the Lord? Well, Lord, and your Bibles is in all capital letters, and that means it's the, that's the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. This angel of the Lord is Yahweh because later in, in this passage, it says that, that Yahweh saw Moses turn aside and the Lord or Yahweh spoke to Moses. So this angel of the Lord is, is fully God, but also distinct. The angel of the Lord is distinct. There's only one other person in the scriptures that is identical, fully God, and yet distinct. And that's Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The reason that Moses is not destroyed here in the presence of God is because of the angel of the Lord, this mediator, which is a pre-incarnate, appearance of Jesus Christ. The holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it. 
There is only one person, one, that conforms to the holiness of God, and that's Jesus Christ. You and I, in your lifetime, you will never, never, never perfectly conform to the holiness of God. Jesus Christ is the only one who has and the only one who does. So you say, well, then how am I embraced by God if I don't conform to his holiness? How am I embraced? You're embraced when you attach yourself by faith to the one who does conform perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone makes you fit for God's presence. He alone conforms to God's holiness, and when you attach yourself by faith to Christ, then Christ's conforming to the holiness of God is credited to you. There's a great scene in uh, the movie The Incredibles, and I forget which one it is. I forget if it's the first or the second. But basically, there's a scene where a, a huge explosion happens. And there's this massive fireball that is coming down and about to land on the Incredibles family, right? Mom and dad, Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and then the, the, the kids, right? Dash and little Dash and Violet. Well, little Violet has the superpower where she can create a force field. So mom and dad and Dash, they all run and they get near Violet. And then right as this fireball is about to land on them, she puts up this force field. And the fire destroys and consumes everything around it, but they are, they are safe. In one way, they are embraced by the fire, not consumed or destroyed by it. They're embraced by it. They're not destroyed by it. Jesus Christ when you cling to him by faith, is the Holy One. He is the one that has perfectly conformed to the holiness of God. When God's presence comes, when God's holiness comes, which in the scriptures is symbolized by fire, if you are in Christ, we use that terminology so much here, but it's beautiful. If you're in Christ, then God's presence doesn't destroy you, God's presence embraces you in Christ. You are fit for God's presence by faith alone. Faith alone in Jesus Christ. He makes you fit for God's presence. You don't. How does God reveal himself to a lost and broken world? First, through a mediator, but second, through a sign. Second, through a sign, God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to use you to do it. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is basically saying, God, listen, they're not going to believe me. So you gotta give me some sort of sign. They're not gonna listen to me. So give me some sort of sign. God gives Moses three signs. The first, he says, take your staff, just a normal shepherd's staff, throw it on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground, turns to a snake, says, grab it by the tail, grabs it by the tail, turns back into a staff. By this sign, God 
is declaring his authority over the Egyptian rulers because the snake was, a, was symbolic of Egyptian royal authority. God was by that sign saying, I have authority over earthly powers. Then he goes to the second sign. He says, Moses, put your hand in your cloak. He pulls it out. It's leprous. Put it back in, pull it out. It's healed. So by the second sign, God says, I have authority over sickness and disease. And he gives him a third sign. Says, hey, Moses, go to the Nile, take some water, throw it on the ground. He does it. It turns into blood. Right? The, the Nile was the life force for the Egyptian gods. And so by that sign, God was declaring and proclaiming his authority over false gods. Now, it's at this point, if you are skeptical about Christianity, if you are struggling to embrace the claims of Christianity, it's at this point that you say, exactly. Look at all of those signs and all of those wonders and all of those miracles that God did for his people in the Old Testament. He showed himself, he revealed himself so tangibly. What about today? I mean, when I throw a stick on the ground, it doesn't turn into a snake. When I go to the St. John's River and I take a little cup of water and throw it on the ground, it doesn't turn to blood. Where are God's signs today that I may believe? There's almost an identical conversation that happens between in the New Testament between Jesus and some religious leaders, almost identical to the conversation that God has with Moses. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're saying, they're doubting Christ's authority. They doubt that he is who he says he is. In the same way that Moses is anticipating the people will doubt God's authority, these religious leaders say, give us a sign. In the same way that Moses anticipates God's people will say, give us a sign. And listen to how Jesus responds to these religious leaders. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus gives them one sign, and that is his resurrection. His resurrection is the sign that he gives and it's the sign of God's authority over earthly powers. It's the sign of God's authority over death, disease, sickness. It's the sign of God's authority over false gods, over evil, over the devil himself. Back in 2004, a large earthquake hit the Indian Ocean, producing a massive tsunami, and it killed some 230,000 people. There was a 10-year-old British girl. Her name was Tilly Smith. 
She was on vacation with her family in Thailand. And her family took a walk on the beach in front of the hotel where they were staying for their vacation. And as they walked out on the beach, Tilly, this 10-year-old girl, noticed the ocean. And it looked weird to her. It looked different. It was, it was high on the sand. There was a lot of froth and fizz. And she had, she had seen this before, but she was having trouble putting it together. Where have I seen this? And then she remembered two weeks earlier, uh, her geography teacher was teaching on tsunamis. And she showed her in the class a video of a tsunami. And what Tilly Smith had seen in the moments leading up to the tsunami, it was exactly what she was seeing on this beach. And so she began to scream and yell and say, a tsunami's coming, a tsunami's coming. And her parents were like, Tilly, quiet. Her, her little sister got so panicked, her dad had to run her little sister back to the hotel, but her mom kept walking and Tilly's like, mom, there's a tsunami coming. And her mother wouldn't listen. And so finally, Tilly, when her mom wouldn't turn around, turned around and ran back to the hotel and she ran in the hotel and her dad was there by a security guard and she said, there's a tsunami coming. And the security guard said, you know what? I just heard on the news that there was a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean. I think you're right. So they go out and they clear the beach. And Tilly's family and the hundred or so people on the beach got to safety in the hotel right before this tsunami hit. She saw the signs. She saw the signs of the tsunami. God has revealed himself to this world through the sign of Jesus' resurrection. It is the sign that Jesus has come once, and it's the sign that he is coming again to make this world right, which means it's a, he's coming to renew it, which means purification, destroying what doesn't belong. And when Jesus Christ comes the second time and God's presence and holiness comes, his holiness will embrace all that conforms to it and destroy all that doesn't, all that offends. In this way, the, the, the tsunami is an accurate illustration. Now, the difference is a tsunami just wreaks destruction. When Jesus returns, and God's presence and holiness comes down again, it's going to be for renewal, to make this world right once again. But that will involve purging and destroying what doesn't belong. Here's the other parallel between that illustration on the response side. Little 10-year-old Tilly Smith didn't get some subjective, weird feeling in her heart or in her mind and say, huh, something's weird. I think there's going to be a tsunami. No, she looked. She saw the froth and the fizz in the water. She saw what it was. She had seen it. She looked and saw the signs. There were facts of what happens before a tsunami comes. The same is true of Jesus' resurrection. It's a historical event. It's a historical fact. It's not some secret subjective knowledge. It was for the world to see. That's why Jesus appeared 
to so many people after his resurrection. A dead man came out of the grave. The response to the sign of Jesus' resurrection is not panic. Those people on the beach started panicking. It's not panic, but it is a running to Jesus Christ. It is a running to him and attaching yourself to him and embracing him by faith so that God's holiness and his presence will embrace you and not destroy you. How does God reveal himself to a lost and broken world? Through a mediator, Jesus Christ, through a sign, his resurrection? And finally, through the ordinary. How does Moses respond to God's call in this passage? Lots of doubt and lots of excuses. Let's just walk through them briefly. His his first objection, verse 11 of chapter three, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? That's Moses saying, I don't think I can do this. Second objection, verse one of chapter four, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. If objection one is, I don't think I can do this, objection two is, no one will think I can do this. Objection three, verse 10 of chapter four, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Objection three is, I don't have the skill set to do this. I'm not competent to do this. And then objection four is actually outright rejection. Verse 13 of chapter four, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Two questions here. Number one, why does Moses continue to object to and reject God's call over and over? It's because Moses has assumed that he's playing a central role in the deliverance of the Israelites. He assumes he's playing the central role and he's not. God is. Moses is thinking way too highly of himself. Way too highly of himself. Second question. Why does God continue to pursue Moses and use Moses even though he continues to reject him and object and resist this call. It's because God will reveal his might and power precisely through ordinary and weak means. God is 100% committed to using ordinary means to do extraordinary things. That is how God works. That's the story of the scriptures from start to finish. He uses weak, stubborn, obstinate people to do his work. God uses the ordinary. The first sign he gives to Moses is the shepherd's staff. Do you know what the shepherd's staff was a sign of in that culture? It was a sign of lowliness. It was a sign of unimportance. And that's what God's going to use to do something miraculous. 
In his book, Unlimited Grace, Brian Chappell tells this, the following fictitious story. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who looked from his palace window. And as he looked out, he saw his child picking flowers. And he was arranging these flowers into a bouquet. And he began to wrap a ribbon of royal colors around the flowers. And the king smiled because he knew at this point that this gift was going to be for the king and for his own pleasure. But he also saw as he looked that his child had not only put flowers in the bouquet, but he had collected some weeds in the fields. And he had collected some ivy that was along the line of the forest. And he had collected some thistles that were on the bank where the grass was unmown, not mowed. And, and so the king gave his oldest son a mission who was at his right hand. And he said this to his oldest son, go to my garden and pick from the flowers that grow there. Then when your sibling comes to my throne room with his gift, remove all that is unfit for my palace from his bouquet. Make it fit by putting in its place the flowers that I have grown. So the older brother did exactly that. The, the younger brother, the child, came in with his bouquet and the, the older brother took out the weeds and the thistles and the ivy and replaced it with flowers, wrapped a ribbon around it, gave it back to the child. And the child takes it and he goes up to his father and he says, here, my father, is the beautiful bouquet that I have prepared for you. And this child would only understand later that his gift had been made acceptable by the gracious provision of the father. When it comes to God's work, you and I pick weeds and ivy and thistles all the time. God uses your weakness, your doubtful, and your imperfect efforts to proclaim his gospel to a lost and to a dying world. We go back to that tsunami story. Tilly Smith, this 10-year-old British girl, was not a meteorologist. She wasn't a scientist or any other qualified person. She simply saw the signs. God doesn't call experts to do his work. He calls weak, broken, doubt-ridden, imperfect people to do his work because God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary and that means that God does not call sinless all-stars to lead a community group or to lead a youth small group or to lead a college discipleship group. No, he calls the ordinary because you don't play the central role in anyone's salvation. God does. Nor does God call expert and trained evangelists to share the gospel with their neighbors and coworkers and classmates. No, he calls the ordinary. 
weak and imperfect. You don't play the central role in anyone's salvation. God does. He calls you with your weakness, your imperfections, your doubts, and he uses you to accomplish his purposes. God reveals himself to this lost and broken world through a mediator, Jesus Christ, through the sign of his resurrection, and through ordinary people like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, imperfect, broken, full of doubts at times. And yet you tell us in your word that that's exactly who you use to proclaim your gospel to this world that's in desperate need of it. Oh, Father, would you forgive us for putting ourselves in the central role of people's growth and people's salvation. You simply call us to, to be present, that you may use us, and you don't even use us because we conform perfectly to your holiness. That is clear that we don't. You use us because we, by faith, are attached to the only one, the only person in history who conforms to your holiness, and that's Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we labor and as we desire for you to be revealed to this world, would we do so standing firmly on Christ? And Father, would you accomplish extraordinary things through ordinary people like us? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.